0: Hi, I'm Seth Roseman, I'm Jonathan Fuller, and welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and
1: I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions.
0: What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it, because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together.
1: So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if
0: you've been to seminary
1: like us, if you want to know more about the Bible, but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us, and let's tell a good story today. Seth, what's good, my man?
0: It's a good evening.
1: It is? That's good. I'm glad. I'm I'm glad to be with you. I'm always glad to be with you, and I'm always glad to be able to ask you a certain question. What would you do in this particular situation... So this might be a first for us in WWYDITPS, and this is a two-part question. Oh wow, wow! So here, here we go. First part of the question: Which would you want to repurpose as a common household item, a spear or a sword? And the second part of the question is: What household item would you replace with your repurposed spear or
0: sword? Okay. I think I would repurpose a spear as a large kebab for my grill.
1: <laughs> like, not not a spit where you could, like, rotate a large piece of meat, but just, like, a single kebab. Just
0: a single kebab.
1: <laughs> I'm picturing a kebab where you put, like, a whole, like, excessively large steak, uh, a whole, like, a whole tomato, a whole onion, <laughs> a whole bell pepper. It's... Like a, one kebab to feed an entire family.
0: And they're all cold in the middle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> None of them are cooked well at all. And then they're just like, why'd you use a spear for this? <laughs> I think I think I would actually go with the sword. Because I think artistically you could do a little bit more with the sword because there's more metal to it. But I have no idea what I would do. like Because I, I, feel, I feel like the only thing I could repurpose it for other than like a knife for chopping up vegetables for kebabs is something that's like you know repurposed metal artwork or something or just like hanging it on the wall but it still seems pretty dangerous to do with a sword Uh, maybe i'm second guessing this a spear would probably be pretty helpful because you know you could also put it by your desk at work and if you had receipts you could just like stab, stab the receipts them. through to keep them organized until you do whatever reconciliation stuff you need to do with your receipts each month
0: could you turn a spear into a lamp
1: a lamp yeah you probably could you could probably do that with uh we'll with sword. either one yeah i just feel like uh, no i'm going to change i'm going to back <laughs> off my original instinct i'm going to go to spear because without as much modification, there's less that's like inherently dangerous about it. The <laughs> sword is mostly blade, some handle, and the spear is like the exact opposite. So if, just for the sake of practical safety for everyone in the house, I'm going with the spear. I don't, yeah, I like it. Repurposed is a lamp. A nice lamp to read by. Just be careful when you reach up into it to turn, to on turn the lamp. light off. You be... Yeah. <laughs> Well, there is some repurposing of both spears and swords in our scripture tonight, so would you go ahead and read the scripture passage?
0: This is Isaiah 2, 1-4. through four. Here we go. This is what Isaiah, Amos's son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain in the house of Jacob's God so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. I love that text.
1: Yeah, me too. And the reason I went with the CEB for this week, you know we've, I know we've introduced this version before, so I won't go into all the reasons that I love the CEB. But for this specific passage, my rationale was actually pretty simple. Looking at this specific passage, which is a poem, you want something that kind of offers that poetic experience and some of our translations that focus more on going for a word-to-word or literal translation kind of lose some of that and so the ceb was able to translate in a, in a way that's more readable more conducive to the flow of the poem and have a have a nice rhythm to it nice feel to it just made some good word choices i thought to make this passage which is really beautiful Uh, even more so by cleaning it up a little bit and making it a little more accessible. But as you read through that, what were some things that stood out to you?
0: I have some familiarity with with kind of the, the last part about turning swords into iron plows and nations not taking up their sword against each other. But I'll be honest, I'm not really sure that I ever thought about that in context. Almost the whole beginning part. I was like, "Oh, well, wow. I've really been focusing on the last half of this."
1: Hmm. So what were some of the things that maybe were more unfamiliar for you from that first part?
0: This idea that that somehow on the Lord's mountain, that's like a that's some type of beacon that many nations will go and say, "Oh, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain." Like it seems to me, in, at least in my initial reading that, like, this isn't just Israel, right? Like, these are, these are other nations who are, who are seeing this and saying this.
1: Yeah, there seems to be this vision for a new kind of community, right? Where people groups and nations, even though our modern understanding of the word nations is probably pretty different from what the word would have meant at the time, less a focus on arbitrarily defined geographical borders and more about, again, clan tribe some level of association with the people you're living with in your community there's a broader association and connection point that all centers on this mountain of god and that that vision of going up to it and that's where all this really powerful transformation is happening but i think before going into too much depth of the story of this particular passage i think a little bit of a bigger picture about the book of isaiah might be a little helpful Uh, so isaiah is probably one of the most complex books in the entire bible Uh, it's pretty long it's about 66 chapters long and most scholars would agree that it's pretty unlikely that isaiah is talking about one person named (laughs) isaiah in fact most scholars actually divide the book into three isaiah's so to speak Um, and most of that comes from the the ideas and the historical events that the prophecies throughout the book of isaiah and the interactions that the character of isaiah has in relation to the overall timeline so there there are events that are referenced that are generations apart so again there's often a split into three different sections, and that might be helpful for us to think about. So our passage tonight comes from 1st Isaiah, which typically falls between Isaiah chapter one and chapter 39. 2nd Isaiah and 3rd Isaiah are chapters 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66, respectively. And the biggest distinction between 2nd and 3rd Isaiah and 1st Isaiah is most of the stuff that is written down is referring to events in Judah, in Jerusalem, that are happening while they are still kind of in control of that area. These are written about times before the exile that was so devastating to their community. And then those kinds of events are referenced more explicitly in 2nd Isaiah and 3rd Isaiah. And another thing that makes Isaiah kind of complicated is it's not, As we might hope for today a really chronological storyline. It's really more so a curated expression of a particular message in a a particular time. Um, And so what makes this particular message unique in its location right at the beginning of chapter two, so pretty early on in 1st Isaiah, is that it really stands out in its tone as being more positive, more hope-filled, that a lot of the passages around it are. A lot of them are far more critical of Judah, the kingdom of Jerusalem, the main city. Um, And there's even kind of a sense of internal criticism as well when you get to Isaiah chapter 6 and you read about Isaiah's call story, which is one that is, again, more internally oriented and internally reflective. That's where this book starts and that's where our passage comes from. Um, this poem might be familiar to us also because it shows up at least in some form, some pieces of it show up almost word for word in Micah chapter four. And this portrayal of the future kind of becomes, especially through the period of the exile, becomes such a anchoring point for Israel in exile, for Israel away from the mountain of God. So, in light of all that, was there anything else that that stood out to you as particularly meaningful from what you read?
0: I'm really interested in the line that God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Mm -hmm. It's only after that that we hear about the swords that are turned into plowshares. I never really thought about God being the one who... Who adjudicates this peace? It's somehow God's judgment that makes the swords and the spears unnecessary.
1: Right. And isn't that a new idea of God's judgment? <laughs> that God's judgment is typically the hellfire and brimstone of punishing people who are doing wrong, but there's a real sense of reconciliation of bringing together of restoration and healing for the people involved I think the really important landing point of all this is this this idea of the restoration of all things right so because the weapons that once turned people groups against each other were then returned to agricultural and farming tools there's this sense of both connection not only between the people groups that were fighting but also this redirection back to the creation and with the brokenness that humanity experiences our relationship with the earth is not whole our relationship with one another is not whole and all of that is being made new on god's mountain and i really appreciate that that landing point and it kind of it kind of connects to this larger theme and vision of the future with god that can be summed up in the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, And I think you're getting at a really important component of that, Seth, was like, it's not just about kind of negotiating an armistice or a ceasefire between these groups. These groups that were once at war are going to farm together and they're going to forget what war is all about. And shalom is just that. It's not just the absence of violence or conflict. It's the presence of wholeness. It's the presence of togetherness. It's some sense of completion. Uh, I think that my favorite image of the idea of Shalom is, is the perfect circle. It has no beginning, no end, and it contains all that it contains. And I think that image and that idea comes through really clearly in this passage.
0: Your point about how this reorients us back to the earth is really interesting to me because I think we often neglect the earth when we think about the impacts of war. Like, it's not only people who are killed, right? But we pillage, like, large swaths of land in the process. Like, this is also a restoration of that, kind of as, as an antithesis to war.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that movement from brokenness or chaos to wholeness and peace... You know, I think there is, there is a level of this that is, um, that is hope-filled and forward-looking, uh, maybe more prophetic in the way that we might traditionally think about the prophecy being about something in the far-off future. Mm. But a lot of times, prophecy peels back the layers of what's going on at that time, too. And so there's part of me that, though I do receive hope and I do find this image really beautiful... There's part of me that's wondering about how this passage and this portrayal of Shalom as a value of the people of Israel is being critical of the experience of the people of Israel that Isaiah is identifying at the time. Mm -hmm. So is this idea of God as the ruler, as God being the one on the mountain, God's mountain compared to the city of Jerusalem which is often portrayed as being high up on a mountain, and the king at the time being the one who is higher above everyone there, there's kind of this reordering, saying, look at this vision and see how much that contrasts with our experience now. Think of a future where we're no longer surrounded by enemies and we're working together with our enemies, and we're all working together to produce fruit from the earth, and to live peacefully with each other so i think there's this maybe multifaceted layering there of a future hope but also a modern critique and i think you have to you have to be able to see through what you're currently experiencing to think about hope and to think about the future
0: this passage always reminds me of this organization called raw tools and they literally take guns that people donate, they smelt them down, and then they turn them into garden tools. Oh. I always think that's so cool. And their name is Raw Tools because Raw's war spelled backwards. Oh, yes. But,
1: oh, I love it. Turn it all on but, its head.
0: Exactly. But they do more than that, too. They also offer nonviolent training in people's communities. So it's not only addressing kind of the literal aspect that people have guns and that these guns can kill others, but it's also about f- helping people to find ways to solve conflicts nonviolently so these guns don't have to be used like that anymore. They can literally be used in the garden. Like, well, I just think it's so cool.
1: Yeah, that those organizations that are... Taking this, taking this scripture seriously, and sure, they're doing it in a literal sense by I imagine engaging some amazing craftspeople who are you know, smithing these guns into, into shovels and rakes and all the sorts of stuff to, to till the earth again, but doing that work of working towards shalom, working to a different understanding of the world that isn't just violent on its surface with war, but is often violent and the levels beneath and how we interact with one another and how our systems are set up and treat people and, like, that active work to literally dismantle a weapon <laughs> uh, to do a lot of work to dismantle some other stuff that's doing a lot of harm as well and produce something good and beautiful and wholesome on the other side of it. That's amazing. So that's Raw Tools. What's their, what's their website? Just, I, I, we are not, this is not a paid ad, We're just giving them a shout-out because we think they're awesome.
0: Their website's just rawtools.org. Perfect.
1: Okay. Well, check them out if you're in need of some some cool gardening tools or if you have some guns that you think could serve a better purpose. Is there anything else that stood out to you about the scripture? Or do you think we're ready to move on to... What's the
0: point? I think we're ready to move on to what's the point.
1: Okay. So... The... I was wrestling with this a little bit because my response to what's the point, a question, is also a question that starts with what's the point? (laughs) But I see, I do see this passage as really hope filled. And I think for me, what I'm wrestling with is the fact that if this did actually occur or was proclaimed in some way prior to the exile and there was this beautiful image given of the future, This restoration of all things. What was the point of hoping for it? Because the exile still happened and this vision has still not yet become a reality on a large scale. On the scale that I think this text points to. I know we can point to it on on smaller scales. Community oriented scales, of course. But there's a magnitude to the idea of all the nations coming together at God's mountain. restoration and healing And, and ultimately hope didn't prevent this tragedy this devastation this traumatic event so what's the point of hope what's the point of offering this kind of message in the midst of tragedy i think it goes without saying but i need to say it anyway that like that question resonates with me really deeply right now because I am so moved by the ideas that have been presented for new types of communities, for new ways that we can understand how we live together, for ways that are nonviolent, filled with peace, filled with wholeness. And so much resistance comes to it every day. It seems like the system that we're trying to make better, that we're trying to improve, is so resistant to operationalizing a reality that actually affirms the value and dignity of all the people that are participating in the community and makes the assumption that people are full of passion and creativity and strength rather than the assumption that people are dangerous and need to be controlled and i don't know the the question of what's the point of hope as hard as it is to admit as a not just a person who identifies as a christian but a person who is clergy in a christian denomination it's hard to acknowledge the reality of hope right now i'm not sure that i'm having the easiest time seeing it in certain places
0: thanks for sharing that with us
1: how does how does that all that idea or even this vision land with you right now in the midst of all the challenges that our communities and our and this country and our world they're facing.
0: I think I'm with you in that this just seems like a far off dream, doesn't it? People don't seem any closer to giving up their weapons. In fact, if I remember correctly, I, when the coronavirus started, sales for guns went up instead of living into this vision of Shalom that you talked about, it seems like we're, we're living into almost the opposite. Fear is rampant. And fear's so rampant, in fact, that people are buying guns to protect themselves from mm-hmm. diseases that travel microscopically. It just seems like people are, people are reaching for anything that they feel like gives them some security, some sense of power
1: right and at the at the risk of sounding crass you know you can't shoot the virus and and that's that's obvious but it's like there's clearly such a pervasive sense of fear that is working through it's either affecting people's ability to think logically about what are steps that can be protective in this time or it's already amplifying held beliefs about what security means in, in light of the fear that we face and, and that's what tragedies and pandemics and large scale cultural events like that that's what they do but that extreme example is not even what i'm talking about as the issue the thing i think preventing me from having hope because you're you're always going to have those groups that are so far resistant to movements towards peace and justice and wholeness Uh, but i think it's the the group that you need to form the majority so to speak the group that you need to fuel the movement it's that hesitancy that complacency that really has me frustrated because we in order to achieve the larger scale change we need that kind of movement and that kind of energy behind it I know, I know this might go against our rule of not asking each other questions that we wouldn't ask anybody about this passage, but I, I genuinely want to know in your mind, like, what hope is, like, what hope maybe does or doesn't accomplish for a person, what purpose it serves, and why having hope in the face of things that we kind of need need to imagine a different reality about... Like, why, why is that valuable? I know it's a big question, and I'm sorry, but it's just, where, it's just where my head's going right now.
0: That's okay. That's what we do on this show. We ask big questions, and then we we take little pieces and try and at least put something together. Yeah. I just think about hope as what sustains us in the midst of all this. Hmm. I think it's so easy to ask, oh, why, why do I have hope? I think that's a good question. I think we should ask that question. But I think the answer for me is always because it gets us through these situations that seem violent, that seem hmm. like there's something that, that's out of our control. And for I guess for me, hope is always what keeps us moving forward. Even when we... Even when we're not sure what we're moving forward to or walking toward
1: sure i really appreciate that idea of hope being what sustains us i think you said that i think i'm doing a little bit of unlearning here admittedly uh, because i view hope much like this passage it, it's like thinking so far beyond it, it's almost escapist like uh, get me out of this like I, I hope for so much something so much better so i can just forget about all that's going on But I really appreciate, again, your language of hope is what sustains us through the things that we're experiencing. I don't want to, I don't want to assign this idea or belief to people who are working for good in the world, who are working towards shalom in the world. Like, I don't want to assign the idea that they have hope. But if they didn't have a vision of what could be better. I don't know that that work would be motivating for them. It would be draining for them in some way.
0: I guess I'm just asking, like, what is what sustains people when they don't have hope? Mm. Is there anything?
1: I guess in that are a couple of assumptions. And, and the one is that hope in its broadest sense, like I'm not talking necessarily about, like, hope in Jesus or hope in the church or anything like that, but hope in its broadest sense, is there something not called hope that can sustain people through hard like hard good work um i think there's uh there's plenty that can sustain people through hard not wholesome like anti-shalom work um the main thing that i'm thinking of is money or capital in some way (laughs) and who knows like maybe money can sustain sustain folks work In certain directions too but if you ask any social worker if there's a lot of money in the work that they're doing I think they answer you pretty quickly (laughs) so so I guess that's the first question is there is there something besides hope that can sustain the good work of the reign and realm of God that work towards Shalom in the world but also the question in that is if people do not have hope can their work be sustained? Does actually sound like one question, but it's like, I think that's the layer to it. Is is there something behind, besides hope that can sustain the good work of making the world more just, more peace-filled? Now that I've taken like three minutes to restate your question, I can clearly say that I have no idea what the answer is. But what do you think? Do you think there's do you think there's something beyond again hope in the general sense that can sustain this kind of work?
0: I don't think there's anything that can do it in the long haul. Mm. I think you talked about money and capital. <laughs> I think that can do it but only in the short term. Right. That only takes you so far as soon as that dries up. Yeah. You're left with you're left at square one, I guess.
1: I don't know. I'm also really just coming back to what we were talking about earlier about how the vision of hope that's portrayed here in Isaiah is rooted in a vision that drives us towards each other and towards creation. Like we are rooted and grounded in who we are when we are connected to each other, and we're rooted and grounded in who we are when we understand our relationship to the earth. there's something there's something to me that like that really resonates about that idea even when i'm struggling to figure out what the point of hope is in the midst of some more devastating circumstances like if hope is what again as you said sustains us through and connects us to one another that's a pretty important thing for hope to do connect us to each other and connect us to the world around us
0: I like this was a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be when it started. I
1: did too. We keep getting this way. <laughs> My bad. My bad for asking what the point of hope is.
0: <laughs> yeah, when, I, when this started, I was like, man, this is such a happy passage. We can talk about this organization that turns guns into, into garden shovels. This is amazing. <laughs> and it ended with us talking about whether we can whether anything can sustain us that's not hope
1: i know we probably started this very specific portion of the conversation thinking that we'll edit it out but i don't think that we will because i think that's something that's so beautiful about the bible that even in the midst of the same conversation the same ancient words can prompt such different experiences and emotions among the people that are experiencing it and there's something so beautifully human about that and there's something so beautifully divine about that that in these words that come to us in so many forms whether on a screen in a printed version i truly believe that even though i might mean something different than most people who say this mean I do think the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword because of what it can cultivate, because of how it can, like this vision of life on God's mountain, how it can draw us to one another, how it can help us understand our role in the greater ecosystem of the world of creation. And that's why I love this podcast, too. It's because we we do our work we do our preparation as the non-expert but we never really know where the conversation's going to go I think in the midst of pandemic in the midst of social unrest that we have gone to some heavier places lately Uh, but I'm really grateful that first off we can sustain those conversations with each other because they're important I'm also really grateful that the Bible and God are strong enough to stand the test of those really hard questions that there's room for that in our in our faith tradition.
0: I think all we have left is to pray.
1: I think that's true a lot of the time in, as well.
0: In, in general. <laughs> yes.
1: But I would be glad to pray for us. Let's pray. Mighty One, though you reside on the highest of mountains, far above all we can imagine, you also came down to be with us, to understand us, and to feel our pain. Help us to remember to exist in both of those spaces, to go to the quiet, far off, far up places and connect with you, and to also be among the people, our people, to do your work in the world. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who is high and lifted up Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story are we going to tell next week?
0: Next week, we're talking about Matthew 7. It's 15 to 20. Jesus tells us to beware of false prophets. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.